The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would, please open it up to Romans chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 23 today. It's page 943 in the Red Bible, page 1121 in the Large Print Blue Bible, and page 1125 in the Children's Bible. Romans chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible, uh, those Bibles are for you to keep and take with you. We love to give away Bibles uh, if you don't have one, so please take and enjoy. Romans chapter 6, we'll start in verse 14 and read through the end. Romans 6 verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, You were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would do the miraculous. We pray that you would change our hearts. We pray that you would speak powerfully through a sinful messenger and that you would be received warmly by those who come here today struggling with a variety of issues. God, change us and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving is one of those times of the year where you face a deeply cosmic existential question, which is, should I stick to my diet, right? I've made a diet. I have a diet. Should I stick to it? Right? Anyone else ask that question? Just me? Okay, good. All right. But you say, how much should I stick to my diet, right? Well, my personal diet is I try to stay away from sugar and from carbs, especially in the wintertime because it makes me just this comatose zombie, all right? Well, on Wednesday, uh, the day before Thanksgiving, I was doing pretty good. Breakfast had eggs, lunch I think I had a salad, dinner had soup. I was doing well. I was being a good boy. I stayed away from sugars and carbs, and I was awake, and I was alert, and things like that. But then my sister brought out the pumpkin pie, which is an evil thing to do. And she not only brought out 
pumpkin pie, but she brought out whipped cream and ice cream, two things that we're not even allowed to mention in our household. And so there I am looking at the pumpkin pie and the whipped cream and the ice cream, and I turn to my wife and I say, Trish, it's pumpkin pie. You know, pumpkin pie is my favorite pie. And she has whipped cream and she has ice cream. And I'm saying this to her. I'm like, I've been good today. I, I haven't eaten any of this junk today. Can I do this? And, and I'm, I'm hoping she'll respond saying, ah, it's Thanksgiving, go for it, right? That's what I'm hoping she will say. But instead she says, I'm not your mother. Do what you want. And I know my mother would have wanted me to eat the pie, so. And it was delicious. It was so good. You know, sin is kind of like pumpkin pie. Um, eating pumpkin pie isn't, isn't a sin. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. That's not. Um, unless you eat the whole pie. Uh, and we have a counseling ministry for you if that's what you do. But, but sin is kind of like pumpkin pie, isn't it? It's always sitting there in front of you. It's, it's, it's enchanting you. It's saying, come and, and feast, right? You have that, that sin in front of you, and it is, it is so delicious looking, and you want to feast upon it. Um, we, we justify, you know, we say we've been a good boy or a good girl, and so I could just go into this sin a little bit. It's not a big deal. We, we, we willfully refuse to remember the consequences of our sin, right? A, a comatose zombie for me for eating certain things and the consequences of sin. You know, Paul throughout the book of Romans has made a convincing argument that says you are not saved by your good works. You are saved, you are justified, declared right before God by faith, not by works, by faith in Jesus Christ and that he died for your sin and rose on the third day and his righteousness is given to you. And so you're saved by grace through faith, not by your own works. Now, when that good news of the gospel is proclaimed, there is a natural question that always follows behind it. And the question goes like this. If I am saved by grace through faith and I cannot lose my salvation by my sin, then why not just sin freely? Why not just enjoy the pleasure of sin if I cannot lose my salvation, if I'm saved by grace through faith? Paul knows that this question follows behind an understanding of the good news of the gospel, and so he reiterates it here. He talks about it both in verse 1 and in verse 14. In verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then in verse 15, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And then Paul responds, by no means. Let it never be. God forbid. And so throughout Romans chapter 6, Paul's really just explaining this phrase, by no means. Why shouldn't we sin? If we're saved by grace and sin doesn't cut us off from God because we're forgiven, why not go sin freely? And so throughout this chapter, he explains why he says, by no means. And so before we dig into Paul's instruction, I want to ask you, what is your pumpkin pie? What is the sin that always sits before you, tempting you, saying, come and eat? Is it the temptation to lash out at family when they frustrate you? 
Is it the temptation to steal a piece of candy or iPad time when your parents are not around? Is it the temptation to entertain unforgiveness, which is destructive to your soul? Is it the temptation to drown your stress in food or alcohol? The temptation to buy your happiness on Amazon or Black Friday? The temptation to compromise your values to fit in at work or to gain another client? There are so many out there that I could list. My guess is when I ask you what is your pumpkin pie, your temptation, a thought came immediately to mind. And there's a chance that some of you said, I don't want to think about that. I want to deal with something else more manageable. But that's the thought that God wants us to deal with today. What is it that you're so tempted by that you justify consuming it by saying, you know what, I am saved by grace, not by works. And so I can go ahead sinning in this area. Well, today in God's word, Paul is going to tell us why we should not continue in sin, why we should put sin to death, even though we are saved by grace through faith and not by works. And he's going to show us some realities of sin, realities of sin that some of you may already be aware of, but are willingly refusing to remember them and to put them into practice. The three realities about sin that that Paul is going to remind us or to teach us of today is the destruction of sin, the defeat of sin, and the death of sin. And as we look at these three realities about sin today, my hope is that God would tattoo them onto our hearts and onto our soul so that when the slippery second of temptation comes into your life, you can recall these and remember these realities about sin. And so first, Paul shows us the destructiveness of sin. As we mentioned earlier, sin is pleasurable. There is some instant gratification for sin. If there wasn't, we wouldn't sin. But that pleasure that comes with sin is like bait. Like when you go fishing and you put bait on a hook. We swallow the pleasure, the pleasure bait, but we are hooked by the hook. And it leads us into destruction. And so what is the destruction that sin leads us into? Well, Paul lists out, again, three things here. First, sin enslaves us. There is a lie that was begun at the beginning uh, with, with Satan in the Garden of Eden. It's a lie that has been propagated throughout history. It is a lie that you and I often believe. And it, Satan was lying to Adam and Eve and telling them that God's rules were oppressive. That they, were, that, they were, that they were slavery, that they were obstacles to their happiness, that, that there wasn't freedom in God's law, but there was just, there was just a, a, a pressure to live up to something that you never could. And so throughout history, there's always been this thought that God's law is not good and right and freedom, but that God's law is oppressive and keeps me from being happy. You know, this world will tell us that bondage is being faithful to your spouse and restraining sensual urges for the sake of purity. That that's bondage, but freedom comes from doing whatever you want, whenever you want. The world will tell us that coming to church on Sundays is is bondage, it is slavery. If you want freedom, go golfing, right? Right? Go fishing, Go, go play sports, go do anything. Don't go to church. Church is bondage. You want freedom? Get away from church. The world will tell us that bondage is eating and drinking and spending to our heart's content. 
That freedom is consuming as much resources as possible. But you see, what the world defines as freedom, what the world tells us is freedom, God calls slavery. And it's something that all of us know in our lives, that following this quote-unquote freedom does not lift to happiness and joy and freedom, but leads to misery. In verse 16, this is what Paul is talking about. Verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? In essence, Paul is saying, I know you think that you have mastery over sin, but the reality is is that sin has mastery over you if you give yourself to it. Now, maybe this is hard for you to believe that, that sin has mastery over people, but all you have to do is look at the news. I mean, other than the weather, pretty much the rest of the newscast is about people that are enslaved to their sin. This past week, a comedian, I heard him say this joke, he said, this just in, there are now four politicians who have not been accused of sexual harassment. If you've listened to the news, you know that that Hollywood director after Hollywood director after politician after politician, all these famous people are being exposed because of their slavery to sin. You see, these people know that if they pursue these things, which are not right but are wrong, if they pursue these things, they're jeopardizing their career, they're jeopardizing their income, they're jeopardizing their marriage, they're jeopardizing their family, but they can do no other because they are slaves to sin. Slavery spreads throughout our lives. Think of the athletes or musicians that have ruined their careers because of addictions and slavery to drugs and alcohol, or the person who's racking up credit card debt because they're enslaved to shopping, or maybe it's more socially acceptable, the, the, one who, the, the, the one who neglects their family to climb the corporate ladder, or the wife who neglects her husband because she's enslaved to, to caring for every need for her child. You see, there is enslavement all around. Sin enslaves us, and it starts small, but it, but it grows and it escalates. You know, no one, no one binge drinks in college thinking, I want this to dominate and ruin the rest of my life. No one does that. Nobody starts obsessive gambling thinking, I want this to ruin my retirement and left me destitute. No one starts reading romance novels thinking, I hope this makes me completely uncontent with my husband. It doesn't start that way. It starts small, but it always escalates. You see, friend, sin may lead to pleasure, but sin never leads to freedom. You may think that you're controlling your sin, but your sin is controlling you. It is enslaving you. It demands your allegiance, your focus, your worship, and many times even your life. And so sin is destructive because sin enslaves us. Sin sin also kills. Verse 16, it says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death. And then skip down to verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What does it mean that sin leads to death? Well, we have talked about it on a spiritual level, that sin creates death between us and God. It breaks our relationship with God. We are no longer in relationship with God. We are spiritually dead. We've also talked about it on an eternal scale, that we are eternally dead, that we are condemned to hell for all eternity because of our sin. 
But I want to think of it in a different way. I want to think of how sin causes death in everyday life. You see, sin causes death in relationship with your family. It, break, it kills our joy with God. It kills our mission in life. Sin kills intimacy with Jesus. Sin kills everything around us. It diminishes it. It's like, it's like a stone thrown into a lake with the ripples of death going outwards. Sin kills even if no one else knows your sin. Even if your sin is secret, the ripples of death spread outward. Sin enslaves us. Sin kills us, but sin also shames us. Verse 21 says, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Again, we can trace so much back to the Garden of Eden. But do you remember when God created man and woman? It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not what? Ashamed. They were not ashamed. But then what happened? They, they sinned against God. They disobeyed God. And shame evaded the world. And they were overcome with shame. And they tried to hide their shame with fig leaves. Part of the destruction of sin that Satan wants us to forget is that sin brings shame. I have a friend that several years ago I was driving around Green Bay with. And we drove past a park. And he pointed to some bushes in that park. And he he said, you see those bushes? And I said, yeah. And I, he said, I did a lot of bad things in those bushes. That's where I would escape from my parents and go do things that I knew I shouldn't be doing. And you could tell that he was ashamed of what was done there. I know many of you have grown up in Green Bay. I'm guessing there's certain areas that I could go to, maybe places in your childhood home where we would go and you would see shame of things that you have done. I know there are for me in St. Louis where I grow up. See, sin leads to not to freedom, not to joy. It leads to shame. It's been said that shame is the leprosy of the soul. That shame keeps us from looking into the eyes of one another, from forming intimate relationships with one another, from, be, <coughs> excuse me, from being vulnerable and transparent and real with one another. Sin is destructive because it enslaves us, it kills us, and it shames us. Pastor Matt Chandler gave what I thought was a great illustration of the destructiveness of sin and the deceitfulness of sin. Have you ever heard of or seen that show when animals attack? Okay, It's usually like some woman in the outskirts of Minnesota who has this baby tiger, right? And she loves this baby tiger and she calls him Bobo, right? And she's cuddling with Bobo and she's feeding Bobo and she's playing with Bobo, right? But then as she feeds Bobo, Bobo gets bigger, right? And bigger and bigger and bigger and her habits don't change. And so she keeps playing with Bobo and hugging Bobo and feeding Bobo. And she thinks she has mastery over Bobo until Bobo shows that he actually has mastery over her. And he turns on her, and the mistake is absolutely lethal, right? The name of the show kind of describes what happens, doesn't it? Okay. Sin is very much in the same way. We can, we can toil with sin a little bit, toy with sin a little bit in the beginning, but it grows as we feed it, and it has mastery over us. And so God is telling us that sin is destructive, that sin will turn the tables. You may think you have mastery over it, but it will have mastery over you. And so we need to get rid of sin. We need to eliminate sin. We need to not simply wean ourselves off sin. We must destroy sin in our life. And we do not destroy sin by toying around with it or by feeding it. 
We destroy sin by starving it, by putting it in the backyard to die, by separating ourselves from it. When you are in that slippery second of temptation, do not forget the destructiveness of sin. That sin leads to slavery, destroying our freedom. Sin leads to death, destroying our life. And sin leads to shame, destroying our joy. The second reality that Paul wants to point out to us here is the defeat of sin. Even though sin can enslave people, sin does not get the last word. Throughout Romans chapter 6, Paul is explaining to the Christians in Rome that their relationship to sin and their relationship to the power of sin has changed. If you just look through Romans 6, there's several verses. In verse 2, it says that we died to sin. Verse 6 says that we need, to, we need no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, verse 18, verse 22, all of them say that we have been set free from sin. Verse 10 says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 20 says that you were, you were slaves to sin, meaning you no longer are slaves to sin. And so Paul is communicating that something powerful has happened in your relationship with sin. That once you were alive to sin, but now you are dead to sin. Once you were enslaved to sin, but now you are free from sin and alive to God. This is liberation language. That the old destructive master of sin has been defeated, has been conquered, has been usurped, and that you are given to a new master, a life-giving master, a righteous master, a good master, the Lord God, who now has dominion over your life. This means, friends, that Christ did not only come to defeat the penalty of sin, but to defeat the power of sin. You see, as non-Christians... We could do nothing but sin because we were sinners. Even our noble acts, which we are thankful for, our sin before God, they're called filthy rags in the scriptures because they're not done for the glory of a God who you do not know. But God has rescued you out of the dominion of slavery to sin and brought you into the kingdom of light to enslave yourself to another. It says here as you read along, in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience that leads to righteousness? You know, we want to be free with no one to answer to, no one to be our Lord, no one to be our master. But Paul is saying, listen, the reality is you have one of two masters. Either your master is sin or your master is God, and you will serve that master. You know, when we hear the term slavery, we think of, of modern American slavery, which is a horrific thing in our history, in which people were kidnapped, taken against their will, brought to America, and made to serve others who thought themselves to be superior. In the first century, there was some of that, but a lot of the slavery was not was not an oppressive slavery in which it was forced upon someone, but it was a voluntary slavery because of finances. For example, let's say I owed you 10, or let's say $100,000, okay? And I know that it would take me the rest of my life to pay off this $100,000. So I came to you and I said, hey, could I be your servant, your slave for five years, and that would pay off the debt? And if you said yes, then it would be a mutually agreed upon relationship. And I would serve you. I'd be your servant for those five years. 
But if my mom who loves pumpkin pie or my wife or someone comes along and pays off that debt, then I am free, right? I no longer have to serve that master. All of us were slaves to sin. Sin was our master. And we did not owe it $100,000. We owed it our very life. The wages of sin is death. But at the cross, Jesus pays our wages. He pays our debt to free us from that slave master of sin and free us to be children and slaves of Christ. Now, evidently, Paul hears that in Rome, this is happening, that they're walking in their freedom. Verse 17, Paul says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart, not just performance, but from the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, that is the scriptures and the gospel. And having been set free from sin, which is done by Christ, have become slaves of righteousness. This was the response of the Romans to the good news of the gospel, to the good news of being free, is to enslave themselves to righteousness, to enslave themselves to God, to enslave themselves to Christ. Ryan Stedman was a pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California. And one day he was walking through the streets of Los Angeles, and he saw this eccentric man with a sandwich board on him. And as he walked Up past him, he saw on the front of the board, it simply said, I am a slave for Christ. And walking past, he looked back at this eccentric man to see what's on the back side of the sandwich board. And it said, whose slave are you? This is the question that Paul is asking you. Whose slave are you? You cannot be completely free and have no master at all. Your master is either sin or it is Christ. You are a slave to one or to the other. And the most wonderful thing is that when we are a slave to Christ, when we're a slave to God, when we're a slave to righteousness, that is when we are the most free. You see, Christ sent us free not to do whatever we want, but to finally do what we ought, to be fully human, to pursue righteous, to be righteous by faith. This is where happiness and joy are found. I have found many people who have pursued, quote unquote, freedom in very sinful manners. And they are the most miserable of people. Joy and freedom comes not from pursuing sin, but enslaving yourself to Christ. Now just to be clear, Paul is not saying that it is impossible for the Christian to sin. But what Paul is saying is it is inconsistent for you to sin. Because you are no longer a slave to sin, but you are a slave to God. Paul is exhorting you to act according to to your new master. Now, what does it look like to be enslaved to righteousness, to be enslaved to Christ? I love verse 19, how Paul puts it. Second half, he says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, again, it escalates. He says, So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So if you're wondering, what does it look like to live as a slave of God, to live as a slave to righteousness? All you have to do is remember how you were a slave to unrighteousness. How did you pursue sin in your life? Didn't it captivate your mind? Wasn't it something that you were thirsting after, chasing after, pursuing? Weren't you single-minded towards it? In the same way that you pursued unrighteousness, he says, take that same energy and pursue righteousness. 
with your time and your money and your energy. Friends, what are you lusting after in your life? What are you craving? Do not lust and crave after sin, but lust and crave after God, after righteousness, because you are no longer under the dominion of sin, but you are under the dominion of God. Sin has been defeated for you if you are in Christ. It has lost its grip. And so God is calling you to walk in that freedom. And so when temptation springs up in that slippery second, when you're making a decision what to do, remember that sin is always destructive. It enslaves us, it shames us, and it kills everything around us. Remember the power of sin has already been defeated at the cross, that it is no longer your master and you need no longer serve it. And finally, remember the death of sin. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, which means being conformed into the image of Jesus, and its end, eternal life. Eternal life isn't just living forever, uh, because the reality is everybody's going to live forever in one of two places. But eternal life is defined like this by Jesus. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you trust in Christ for your salvation. Because eternal life is knowing Jesus and growing closer to Jesus and to God through the Holy Spirit. This is eternal life. And so our hope and our joy is that we will live eternally with God for all eternity. But there's greater news. Not only will we live with God for all eternity, but we will also be done with sin. Sin will die to us. I love verse 14. One of my new favorite verses in the Bible. In Romans 6, 14 it says, For sin will have no dominion over you. This is future tense. Sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are currently not under law, but under grace. See, verse 14 is not a command. It's a promise. A promise that since we are under the dominion of grace, for all who are in Christ, if you are under God's grace, then there is a day that is coming where sin will be no more. Where sin will have no dominion over you at all. You see, Christ has dealt with the penalty of sin at the cross. He has dealt with the power of sin at the cross. But when we get to heaven, no longer will there even be the presence of sin. It will be a sinless place. There will be no more struggling. There will be no more devastation. There will be no more death or enslavement. Because there will be no more sin in heaven. The great theologian Augustine summarized the history of the power of sin in this way the relationship between man and the power of sin. In man's created estate, which is Adam and Eve, they were able to sin, right? They were able to eat the forbidden fruit or not eat the forbidden fruit. And of course, we know how that went. In man's fallen estate, we are not able not to sin because our, our, our slave master is sin and we are sinners. And so we're not able not to sin. Everything we do is sin because it's not done for the glory of God. In our redeemed estate, when we come to faith in Christ, we are then able to not sin 
because sin is no longer our master. But then in our heavenly estate, and I love this, we are not able to sin. Doesn't that sound awesome? (laughs) Doesn't it sound wonderful to no longer struggle with sin and slavery and death? Now the question is this. How does knowing that sin is going to die, that sin is going to be done away with, how does that lead us to pursue righteousness right now on earth? Let me ask you this. How many of you have started decorating your house for Christmas? Raise your hand, put up your tree. All right. You know it's not December 1st yet, right? You know that. Like, what are you doing? Why do we decorate so early? Because we love Christmas Day. Christmas Day is glorious, right? It's a day that we celebrate the birth of our Savior. We're with family. We're celebrating. It's peaceful. It's calm. Nobody's working. We're together. It's a wonderful day. And we love that Christmas Day so much. We want to start it early. We want a foretaste of it because it is a glorious day. Heaven is such a glorious and wonderful day. Why don't we start it right now? Why don't we start it right now by pursuing not sin, but righteousness? The fruit leading to sanctification, to joy, to, to freedom, to life. You see, we, we, we pursue righteousness now knowing that sin will be done away with because that will be a glorious place. And we can bring God's kingdom, God's heaven to earth right now as we pursue and enslave ourselves not to sin, but to righteousness and to God. Let me end with this. U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl has been in the news recently. Um, Bo was serving in Afghanistan in 2009 when he walked off his outpost and walked into enemy territory intentionally. Okay? For five years, Bo was held captive by the Taliban in horrific conditions. Uh, he was beaten. He was tortured. They tried to rip out his beard. He was held in a metal cage. I think he says four feet by four feet square. He was in total darkness for weeks at a time, total light for weeks at a time. He was in strobe lights for weeks at a time. Finally, after five years of living in this horrific condition, a deal was made. And it was a controversial deal, but in exchange for five Guantanamo Bay detainees, Bo was traded to purchase his freedom. The, the, The special ops came in and they landed their helicopter and there were, Bo was surrounded by Taliban soldiers, and they handed him over, and he got in the helicopter, and as they were, they were going away, as they were lifting up, Bo took a piece of paper, and he wrote on the paper, SF question mark, which simply meant special forces question mark. He was wondering who they were, who his new captors were. To which the man took the piece of paper and wrote down, yes, we have been looking for you for several years. At which time, Bo broke down in tears of relief. After undergoing some immediate treatment in Afghanistan, Bo was then transferred to a treatment center in Germany to undergo what the military calls reintegration. This is the process of reintegrating Bo into a new society, back into civilization as an American, to back into freedom. And Bo recalls this time of reintegration and he says shortly after he was, he was rescued and he was freed, he was brought into a room. And they said, sit wherever you want. And there was a couch and there was a comfy chair. And Bo sat right down on the ground. Because it's all he knew for five years. 
It's where he was most comfortable in many ways. And then night came along and they said, here's your bed, a nice, comfy, warm, wonderful bed. Enjoy, right? But Bo chose to sleep in the bathroom on the floor because it's what he was used to. But the reintegration process continued to grow. He continued to heal. He continued to trust. And he was able to enjoy the benefits of his freedom. Friends, you and I have all abandoned our post. All of us have walked away from God. All of us have walked into the enemy territory of sin. And it has treated us horrifically. Why would we go back? Why would we act as citizens of hell when we are citizens of of heaven. God sent Jesus Christ not only to purchase your freedom, but so you can live free right now. Live free from the power and misery of sin. In a second, we're going to sing an old hymn, There is a Fountain. And there is a line in there that I have been thinking about literally for three months, ever since I saw that we would be talking about this today. In the third verse, we will sing, Be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. It does not say sin no more to be saved. That's not what it says at all. It says be saved to sin no more. Friends, sin is not freedom. It is slavery. It is bondage. It is destruction. But pursuing God in righteousness, it was where true joy and freedom can be found. And so in that slippery second of temptation, Remember the destruction of sin, that it causes death and slavery and shame. Remember the defeat of sin, that it no longer has dominion over you. You do not have to obey its passions. Remember the death of sin, that there is a day coming, a glorious, wonderful day, where sin will be no more. Let's pray. Lord God, I come confessing there are many times I justify my sin, thinking I've been a good boy. There are many times when I think sin is freedom and I forget the truths of the destruction it brings. I'm guessing, Lord, I'm not the only one here who has those struggles. And so, God, we pray that you would burn in our hearts the truths that you have spoken to us today, that we will fight the good fight, that we will pursue righteousness, that we will pursue you not to be saved, but because we have been saved, because we want to live in the joy of our salvation. Help us to that end, Lord, we pray. God, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of the price for our freedom. It was the cost of your Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Lord, pray that we would come to this table repentant over our sin, sorrowful over our sins, but also hopeful and joyful in the good news that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Help us by this. Nourish us to fight for justice, to fight for righteousness, and to live in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.